Lord, we thank You and we praise You for this time. We thank You, God, that through Your infinite mercy and grace that You afforded to us, Lord, forgiveness through the new covenant, through Your blood that had been shed for all who will call upon Your name. Lord, we thank You for the cross, for it is through the cross that we know You, that we have been made righteous and acceptable, clothed in Your righteousness. Our Father in heaven, we thank You and praise You this morning for the gift of Jesus. Open the eyes of our heart. In Your name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom. As we look at this text and as we continue, uh, we are looking at some of the things that Paul had to share with the Philippian church as he writes to them from a Roman prison, as he shares with him or with the church his struggles. Matter of fact, he even tells them in chapter 1 that he has struggled and is struggling. <laughs> and he indicates that they are struggling as well. But he also says in chapter 1 that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. In other words, though I may be struggling today, I know that God is working in and through me and through this situation. In chapter 2, he says, I may be being poured out as a drink offering. We talked about last week how some would see that as a complete waste as the priest would sometimes take the wine and sometimes in certain instances of the blood and sprinkle that around the altar. A drink offering was typically some type of liquid that had value that would be poured out. And many might look at that and say, what a waste. And Paul says, many may be looking at my life and thinking, what a waste. But he says this as well. He says, but at the name of Jesus, let me tell you, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in chapter 3, he says today, he tells us in this letter in chapter 3, that you may think and it may appear that I have accomplished a lot. You may think that you have accomplished a lot in religious terms, but it is nothing in the eyes of Christ. I alone, or Christ alone, is where I receive my glory. It's where I receive my salvation. And I have not earned it, not even the least iota. This week, a popular report came out regarding churches. It comes out every year in a magazine, in a national magazine, Christian magazine. And it's called the Top 100 Churches of 2008. And then there was the top, then next year there'll be the top new 2000, uh, top 100 churches of 2009. And there's several criteria that are, are used. Um, I'm here to confess you today that we are not on that list. And, uh, we didn't, we didn't make the top 100 churches, uh, in America. Most of them are very large churches. Uh, we did, however, make the top 100 churches in Flower Mound. So just want you to be aware of that. That's right. Um, there are actually only 76. Uh, so I'm certain that we are in that list. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we as 
men will establish and determine what we feel like is successful. What we feel like is most valuable. Hey, let me tell you this. I'm, I am in no way uh, down on big churches or uh, whatever the churches are on the top 100 list. As a matter of fact, I, 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 know, I looked at it. I'll just confess that to you. I can find look at it every year. What a loser pastor. Um, and I used to actually work at one of those churches. So I am not down on that at all. Matter of fact, our goal has been since we started is uh, we want to continue to start churches. We've started seven churches up to date. So our, our quite frankly, our desire and our vision has never been uh, to be a, a mega church. Uh, mega churches are wonderful. They serve a great purpose. God uses them. Uh, again, I, I've served in one for nearly eight years. I think they're terrific. Uh, it's just God has given us a, a different vision. And so the question becomes, what is it that God is calling us to be as a church? The bigger question, what is God calling you as followers of Christ? How is God measuring success? And the other question is, how are you determining what is success? What is a value? What really matters? Well, let's see what Paul has to say right here as we talk about spiritual freedom, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. We sang that this morning. Maybe some of you are wondering, why do we keep singing that? Because Paul keeps starting every chapter. I mean, you get tired of him reading it. Well, I know we repeat the words a lot, but um, Paul keeps saying at the beginning of every chapter, rejoice in the Lord. Let me give you a better way to understand that in our everyday vernacular. Enjoy the Lord. That's what he's saying. Enjoy the Lord. Enjoy the, the aspect of your faith that you have been forgiven. Your sins have been washed away for those who trust Christ Jesus and call upon His name. Enjoy the fact that you don't have to hope or wonder, will one day you get to heaven? Will you get to God? Will you be good enough? Enjoy the fact that you can be at peace in knowing that Christ has paid the price Enjoy the aspect of worship and having a personal and intimate God who knows your name, who knows what you feel, who knows what you're going through right now. Enjoy the blessings that God has placed within your life. It is no trouble for me to write these things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. It is a a warning, an understanding, a beware, so to speak. And then verse 2, we've just said rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 2, watch out for the dogs. What? what are you talking about here? Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those who are mutilators of the flesh. Man, hey, how are you doing? Glad for you to be here. Watch out for the dogs. It's almost like, it's almost like that drastic all of a sudden. That's, Paul just kind of slaps them upside the head and says, I want you to watch out for the dogs. Well, who are the dogs? Well, it's an interesting term. Because it, quite frankly, was a derogatory term that the Jews used for non-Jews, for Gentiles. They would often refer, particularly pious Jews, would refer to people who were not Jewish and particularly uh, who were not in any way associated with God. They were dogs. And that's what they would call them. They would use that reference. They would use that terminology. And Paul's reversing the vernacular here. What is he doing? He's saying, watch out for the dogs. And he's talking about Judaizers. Now, who are the Judaizers? Judaizers were people who basically did this. They tried to keep all the laws, whether they had been Jewish at birth or not. 
whether they had been converted or not in this particular instance. Some were and some were not. They were trying to keep all the laws, the ritual law, the moral law, and the dietetic law. They were trying to keep the traditions, and they were trying to live a life that was good enough and acceptable and then add Christ to it. You know, it's interesting uh, in life today, we, we still deal with this. There are always two extremes when people come and when they look at Christianity. Some will look at it from this respect, from legalism. I've got to do everything. I have to get myself right. I need to get myself all cleaned up so that uh, I can be acceptable to God. And some will even think so that I can come to God. And so that I can get... You've ever heard anybody say that? I've got to get my life all straightened up so I can come back to church. So I can come back to God. I gotta, first of all, I've got to get myself all straightened up. Okay? That's a form of legalism right there. That you would possess the ability to even straighten yourself all up. That's never going to happen. The Bible tells us in uh, Romans 6 uh, right there that there, there's none who's righteous. None of us are good enough. Romans chapter, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. So, so none of us are really any good, to be frank with you, when we look at our marriage. We also see that in Psalms chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. is God looks down and says that there are none of us who are righteous, none of us who are good. So that's one side, to think that we can be good enough, to think that if I work really, really hard and I really set the standards high, that I am acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, here's the other side. Syncretism. Syncretism. Now, that's a big word that means this. It's the process of taking two polar opposites and trying to combine them together, particularly in religious terms. So let me, let me give you one example, a, a, a great exaggerated form of syncretism. Uh, if you have a chance, go back and read this uh, today. In 2 Kings chapter 16, there is wicked King Ahaz. I, I call him wicked right off the, off the top because he participated in pagan worship by offering his son as a sacrifice. So we know this guy is just like completely corrupt and messed up to begin with. So... Uh, but at the same time, he still has the temple going, still has the altar there. People are still coming to the temple, and it appears that he was even participating until this occurs. All of a sudden, the northern at this point, the kingdom has been divided. So you had the northern ten tribes and the bottom two tribes. Uh, Ahaz is over Judah and Benjamin, the tribe of Judah here, Okay, which incidentally, the other ten tribes are lost. We're not sure where they are anymore uh, because of the destruction of the nation that happened in 722, and then later on even Judah. And so pretty much every Jew can trace themselves back, or would, excuse me, would trace us back to one of those two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Some would say the Levites, but that's probably a stretch. With that understanding, Ahaz is over Judah. Um, the Assyrian army has become very powerful. And there's, there are some truces and some pacts are going on. The northern kingdom and the Syrian army has made a pact. And they, are, they tried to get Judah to join them, but Judah doesn't want to. So now they are lodging an attack against Judah. So with this attack occurring against Judah, remember Ahaz is over Judah, Judah um, Ahaz decides, I'll call upon the Assyrian army and ask them, if they will come help, and, I, and, in, and then I will give them money, I will become a, basically a vassal state. And we'll serve them, but at least uh, we'll have some semblance of freedom, and at least uh, we won't be overtaken 
uh, by the northern kingdom and by the Syrians. So don't get Syria and Assyria mixed up, okay? So that's what he does, even though God had forbidden him to do this. Even though an oracle had already come and had been spoken, a prophecy had already been given to him not to do this, he does it anyway. And so what occurs is this. They, sure enough, the Assyrian army, uh, after he takes gold and silver, gold and silver that belonged in the temple, mind you, uh, he took that and paid, uh, Pleaser the III is actually who it is, and paid the Assyrian army to come in, and uh, they actually uh, are able to push out the aggressors. And But then this happens. He goes and to give thanks and to, to just give honor to the king of Assyria, when he gets there, he notices that they have this great big uh, altar in which they worship their pagan god. And he is so impressed with Tilgath-Pleser III, and he's so impressed with the military might and the economy might of the Syrians that he thinks to himself, you know what? Hey, there's another. There's a God we need to be worshiping right there. We need to get an altar just like that back home. So he has it sketched, and he sends a letter back to his priest back there and says, hey, I want you to build an altar that looks just like this, and I want you to put it in the temple right next to the altar of God. So that's a sure enough, that's what happens. He sketches it, sends it back. The priest has it built. And when he gets back, what does he come back to? Well, you come into the temple, here's the altar of God. And here's the altar of the, the pagan Assyrian altar, the pagan gods of Assyria. And they're right next to each other. And you can come and you can worship both. You can get the blessing of both gods. That's syncretism in its extreme. Syncretism is when we take the values and the tenets of one faith and try to connect them to another faith and even give them up so that we might merge or connect with another religion. That's exactly what's occurring there. So in other words, when we say, well, you know, I believe in Christ. I'm a Christian. But I also have a, believe in another God. Well, that right there is... Not possible, because Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The reality of it is, is sometimes we sacrifice tenets of the faith, that of sin. It's a necessary tenet of our faith that we recognize we are sinners. We've all committed sin. We've all done wrong. Another tenet of faith is this, is that the cross is necessary. The cross, it is only through Jesus and His sacrifice that we can know forgiveness of our sin. And it is only by grace that that's been given to us. And when we say, you know what? Jesus plus Mohammed. Jesus plus Buddha. And we start to say, you know what? I, I kind of believe in all. I believe that all gods are equally valued. We become just like Ahaz. You see, they actually are mutually exclusive. That's the reality. Their syncretism there's legalism, and then there's walking in the grace of Christ, which Paul's about to talk about to us right here. So the first point would be this, freedom from deception. Knowing Christ and knowing Him in His fullness can mean freedom from deception. The deception that we have to earn it or that we can simply mingle it together with another faith. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for men who do evil, who mutilate their flesh. That word mutilate is a gross reference to circumcision, 
but it's also a reference to uh, back in Leviticus and in, in Deuteronomy, uh, God had already uh, made it forbidden people who would mutilate their flesh to come to the temple. Now, what is he talking about right there? Well, if you go back and read First Kings chapter 18, you'll see the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel where the priest and the religious men went out before their gods and cut themselves. It was, a, it was believed to be a method of which you could gain God's attention and gain God's favor by the mutilation of your flesh. And Paul literally uses that same term here for circumcision. And then he says this. He's going to give us the freedom from needing a great resume, from earning our salvation. He says this, For it is we who are the circumcision. We who, number one, worship by the Spirit of God. We who glory in Christ Jesus, number two. And number three, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. You want to talk about earning? You talk about goodness? You want to talk about being religiously pious or religiously at the top of the order? Hey, if you think that's the way it is, let me tell you, I was there, Paul is speaking here. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I'm more. And then he goes through and he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I did exactly as you were supposed to. My parents had me circumcised as a boy on the eighth day. I had the ritual performed. The ritual was done to me. And, hey, I've been faithful with the rituals that were set before me. The rituals that were expected, and I did them right on time, right when I was supposed to, the way it was supposed to be done. Of the people of Israel. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the chosen nation of God's chosen people. Sometimes people say that today, don't they? They say, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, in a Christian nation. Sure, I'm a Christian. We're all Christians here. Number three, he says this. He says, not only am I of the nation of Israel, but of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin. Remember I told you earlier there were two tribes who uh, did not go with the northern kingdom? It was the tribe of Judah and of Benjamin. And the Benjaminites... Uh, ben, the tribe of Benjamin actually had the holy city of Jerusalem. It had high respect and high regard. It was a chosen city. Matter of fact, Benjamin actually was the only son that was actually born in the promised land. So he had great confidence and great history and a great, uh, great national pride. And he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, hey, I have been faithful in the faith. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I keep the law. And not only do I keep the law in regards to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm at the top of the food chain. I'm of the religious order. I've studied hard. I've gone through school. Matter of fact, he, he studied with Gamal, who was probably regarded as the uh, most recognized uh, rabbi of that time. He had studied under him. And he said, hey, look, I'm a Pharisee. Do you know how hard it is to become a Pharisee? I'm one of the elite. I was a part of the most elite religious group of the nation at this time. And he continues and he says, And as for zeal, that word zeal typically, biblically, is, can qualify or understood in this manner. Hating what God hates and loving what God loves. Hating what God hates and loving what God loves. The problem with Paul was, he began to hate things so much, he had his hate focused in on the church. As a matter of fact, he literally says he was attempting to destroy it. He missed 
the Spirit of Christ that had come until He encountered Him on that Damascus road and then everything changed. A man whose purpose in life and his zeal in life was to destroy the Christian church met God on the Damascus road and everything changed. Now he's gone from glorying in that list to what? It says right here, I was a legalistic, righteous, and faultless. I was flawless in keeping the law. But then in verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. There's his creed. There's his mission statement right there. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord and for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. All those things that I've accomplished, all the awards that I've received, all the honors that I've, that I've achieved and I've received, it's all rubbish. matter of fact, you know what the literal word there is? It, it's scubalon. scubalon. It's only used one time in the Bible and it's used right here. And sometimes your translation might use the word dung. Um, it's actually a very strong word. Paul chooses to use this word as shock value, and I'll not use it, but it's, it's poop. Okay, we'll just use that word, all right? It, it's poop. Let me tell you, this, this is where all those things that I've done, all those things that I've accomplished, my lineage and all that stuff, it's poop when I try to stack it up before God and say, Hey, God, look what I've done. I'm, giving it, I'm showing Him my poop. That's all I got. I got nothing else to show you, God. Aren't you glad that your 13-year-old isn't in here right now? Okay. But literally, that's what he's saying. He said, I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is my faith. So we have freedom from deception or freedom from error. Freedom from needing a great resume. And we have freedom to move forward because it is in Christ alone that we find our identity, that we find our hope. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing His suffering and becoming like Him in His death. I remember when I was in college taking my first English, 101, it was surprisingly difficult. I mean, like, it was really, really hard. And I remember just putting all my time into this and, and just making a C and, be, and, and just thinking, I cannot believe how hard. If 101's like this, what's 201 going to be like? Or 202 or whatever. I've got, I got, still got like three more of these things. This is ridiculous. So I decided to go to summer school uh, because I'd heard that's where things are a little easier on you and it'll be a little better. So I actually went to another college uh, not the one that I was going to, and, um, and decided I'll sign up for this English class. Well, I took this English class, and we all wrote our first little paper. The first week, Ralph about had us write a paper, turned it in. I got it back, and there was only one guy that I'd ever even seen. I didn't know, he wasn't really a friend of mine, but I'd, I'd seen him around before. He'd played, uh, he'd played sports on a, a rival school, and so we sat next to each other, and uh, we got our papers back, and when I got mine back, I looked at it out of 30, and that was out of 100, by the way. At 30, I'm thinking, golly, and I paid for this, and I signed up for this this summer, and man, this is not good. And I said, what would you get? He goes, I got a 10, I'm out of here. <laughs> and he gets up and he walks out. He's gone. I'm thinking, I think I'm going to go. And then the thought occurred to myself, I said, my parents will kill me. I, I need to at least show up uh, over here. So he leaves, and the, the professor gets up and he says, uh, 
Now, I'm sure most of you are concerned with the grade that you received. And I would just like you to know that this is very normal. This is very common. Matter of fact, the highest anyone has ever made on the first paper they've turned in my class is a 60. I'm thinking, I still don't feel much better. He said, but let me tell you, this is how I do it. Whatever the highest score is in my class, I put it on a curve and that becomes 100. And so in this class today, a 42 is the highest class. So if you have a 42, that's 100. If you have a 32, that's a 90. And I was thinking, I got a 30. That's an 88. That's a B. All right, I'll take that. That's good stuff there, man. That's right. It's the way it's supposed to be. I still still think that's a stupid way to do things, but I'll, I'll take it. All right? There's the picture right there of what it meant imputation is. It's that I made a 30, or I made a, let's say I made a 42 and that person got a 100. Except that's not even really a good picture. Here's the picture. I made a zero. I made a zero and I get a hundred. It's been given to me. I didn't earn it or deserve it. My real grade's a zero, but I get a hundred. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Paul's saying. I turned my paper in. I turned my resume in. And it was a zero. But because of Christ, I get a hundred. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I just receive it and say, thank you, God. I put my trust and faith in what He has done, that He is the ultimate great giver, and He has established the test of life, which is for me to know Him and to receive His grace and forgiveness. That's what Paul was speaking about here. And he says, now because of that hundred I've received, I have the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. So that somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead, and that somehow is uh, not a question in the sense of, I don't know what's going to go, or I hope I make it, I hope something happens. It's actually a humility question. That even though I don't deserve it, even though I made a a zero on my test, somehow God gives me a hundred to attain the resurrection from the dead, to attain the salvation, to attain the mercy and the goodness that God has given, that one day I will be assured and given heaven. It has already been assured to me. I don't have to hope. I don't have to earn. I don't have to wonder. It is a gift that has been granted to me through the person of Jesus Christ and through His sacrifice. So I don't have to fear what will happen. Whether it be financially, emotionally, socially, spiritually, I don't have to wonder, will God's grace be enough? Hey, remember what we said starting in chapter 1? Paul said, hey, I struggle, and I'm struggling, and I know you struggle. I'm not trying to erase that fact, but I want you to know this, that His grace is sufficient. I want you to know this, that I live in the power of the resurrection, the power of forgiveness, and that I can move forward I don't have to look behind and be trapped by my past. I can move ahead through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. A lot of times people will say, well, you know, I feel like I'm a good person. feel like I'm, I'm good enough. And you know, I always want to say, well, well how good are you? I mean, how, how are you, would you say that you're better than Billy Graham? Would you say you're better than Mother Teresa? What's interesting is Billy Graham says, you know what? I'm unacceptable. It is only by the grace of Christ 
That's what He preaches. That's what He's made His life. If we're going to go by the standard of goodness, the standard of keeping the law, the Bible says none is righteous. No, not one. Billy Graham tells this story. He said, I helped to do the funeral of a friend of mine who was a Jew. And I'll never forget, we did the ceremony and then we went out to the graveside. When we got to the graveside, there was already a monument there. It was literally a statue that resided over the grave where my friend would be placed. And when I saw it, chills went through my body. It was a statue of Moses with the law leaning over. And when I looked at that, I thought, oh my goodness, my friend is counting on his goodness. He's counting on the fact that he's kept the law to obtain his salvation. And I thought to myself, oh, thank you, Lord. I am not counting upon the law, but I am counting upon the cross. What Jesus has done for me. I receive it. I believe it. And I accept it. I received the hundred, though my life I have earned a zero. It's because of the cross. This morning, what are you counting on? The scubalon of your efforts or the cross of Christ? If you've ever received that grace and forgiveness, if you've never come to the cross of Christ and transferring your trust from anything you could do to what Jesus has done, I invite you to come today. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that in Your infinite love and mercy, Lord, You died for us. You placed Yourself upon the cross willingly so that we might know forgiveness. Because You said in Your Word, there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So You have shed Your own blood for us, for all who will believe for all who will trust and commit their lives to You. We receive the grace and the forgiveness, the clothing of righteousness. So when God Almighty sees us, He sees us as a 100, as perfect, as clean, because of what Jesus has done for all who have accepted Christ. Lord, I pray this morning for anyone who has not trusted and accepted Christ, that You would draw them today. And Lord, we will give You the praise and the glory for it. In Your name I pray. Amen.